If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 100 today. Psalm 100. That's page 500 in the chair Bibles. If you have one of those, page 500. Well, this is it. Our last service at the IMC. Our church has been meeting here in this room since January of 2012. Now, many of you have been with us that entire time. And you could attest to the fact that we've seen some interesting things in this building. Most of them... I don't have time to name, but we first started meeting, um, the children actually met downstairs in the anarchist library, which is, that's actually down there. Uh, We've cleaned up here uh, after Saturday night dance parties, rock concerts. Um, One time I forgot my Bible here after church, and I came back and there was a um, uh, kind of like death metal rock and roll show going on. I had to... Uh, kind of pound my way through the mosh pit to come back up here. My Bible was sitting on one of their speakers, and so uh, that, was, that was very strange. Um, and then, of course, who could forget about the art, right? From the abstract painting of scantily clad women uh, that we've had to cover to the colorful bird still hanging over there today. Um, this, this place has been really like a box of chocolates, right, week after week. You never know what you're going to get when you walk in. (laughs) But overall, the Lord has blessed us. He's blessed this meeting space. Now ask any of the elders, and we would tell you that the Lord provided this place for us at just the right time, in just the right way. It really has been a blessing to meet here. But what are we actually doing here today? When we gather as Redeemer Church each week, what is the purpose? What are we trying to do? Do we just meet together once a week because that's what Christians have always done? Why do we do what we do? Why do we sing and pray and preach and observe the Lord's Supper? What's the point of corporate worship? Now, when I use the word corporate worship or the phrase corporate worship, I'm not referring to a business or a corporation, okay? I'm going to use the word corporate worship a lot today. I'm taking the word corporate to refer to the gathering of a group of people for a specific purpose, okay? So when I say corporate worship, what I mean is that the church is meant to gather corporately or together to worship God as an assembly of people with a shared purpose. That's what corporate worship is. Now, unfortunately, for many Christians... Corporate worship is something that's really not that important. Quite honestly, for many people, it's optional. It's something they know exists. Uh, They know that some Christians attend, but it's not really that important for their own spiritual growth. After all, I mean, isn't being a Christian really just about following Christ on my own, in my own way, for my own benefit? But let's not just focus on those people out there who aren't here. Let's ask ourselves, why are we here? Do we really know what God's design is for this time? If so, how is your own participation in it? 
Are you just a spectator? Do you just come to receive or to criticize or evaluate? Is this service just something for a few people to perform, or is there an active role for everyone to play? Today, we're going to look at Psalm 100. In Psalm 100, we see that when it comes to corporate worship, there is an active role for everyone to play. You are not meant to simply show up to church as a sponge and soak everything in. But rather, corporate worship is the primary means that God uses to remind his people of his character, our identity, and his covenant love. Now, what does corporate worship have to do with our emotions, right? Because we're still in the series, worshiping God with our emotions. I think it will become clearer as we go, but what we will see is that God has called us to biblical heartfelt corporate worship. God calls his people to biblical, heartfelt corporate worship. Let's read Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now first, let's go right back to the psalm. Let's look at the structure of this psalm. It's real short, so we're just going to walk through the structure. First, we see four commands. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. Those are commands. Then we have four declarative statements about who God's people are. It is he who made us. We are his people, or we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Okay, four declarative statements. Next, we have four more commands. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And then last, we have the ground for the entire psalm. It tells us why we should obey these commands. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and he is faithful to all generations. Now, this is a psalm I'm sure many of us have heard uh, before. In some ways, this psalm is very simple. It's mostly commands. So we just need to obey the commands, right? Right? Just do what it says. It's just that simple. But the great thing about God is that he never just commands us to do stuff without giving us reasons for those commands. So first, we have to understand the commands. What does it mean to make a joyful noise or serve the Lord or bless his name? We have to rightly understand those commands. And second, we have to understand the reasons behind those commands. That comes in verse 3 and verse 5. So the first thing that we see in verses 1 and 2 is the call for worldwide corporate worship. Worldwide corporate worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And let me first say 
that I think this joyful noise that's being talked about here simply means the noise that happens when God's people gather for corporate worship. I think that's what this is talking about. I think this for three reasons. First, because two lines later, the psalmist explicitly mentions singing, right? Second, because in Psalm 95 and Psalm 98, these same words are used in connection with singing and corporate worship. Psalm 95 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It's clearly talking about God's people gathered in corporate worship. Psalm 98 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praise with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Again, this idea of making a joyful noise is clearly talking about God's people gathered together for worship. The third reason I think this is talking about worship, corporate worship, is because in verse 3, the third-person plural forms are used. It's he who made us, and we are his. We are his people. This indicates to me that this psalm was meant to be sung and applied by God's people who are gathered for worship. So for all of these reasons, I think just from the very first line of the psalm, we have enough evidence to say this psalm is talking about corporate worship, okay? It's true that the noise you make when you sing alone in your room to God or in the shower to God, that can be a joyful noise. That's true, right? But that's not what this psalm is talking about. It's true there are all kinds of ways we can make a joyful noise apart from when we gather with other believers, But this psalm is talking about what happens when God's people gather together to worship Him. And we also see right away that we're not just called to make a joy, we're not just called to make noise, right? Louder and bigger does not equal better. God is concerned with the intention of our hearts. The noise is to be a joyful noise. The singing and worship is to flow out of a heart of deep, satisfaction in God. That's what joy is. But also notice the words, all the earth. This is a clear call for all people to come and worship the Lord. Many of the Psalms are addressed to Israel, God's chosen people. But this Psalm, from the very first line, is addressed to all nations. We see the mission of God on display Uh, in his desire for anyone and everyone to come and join Israel in worshiping the Lord. It's true, as the children are are learning about today, that God singled out Abraham and chose to bless his descendants apart from the rest of the world. But he did that so that all the surrounding nations could see that God is real, they could see Israel worshiping the one true God, and that they would come and join them in that worship. And that's what this psalm is calling for, worldwide corporate worship. Come, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Join us. So all of this tells me that the joyful noise God is looking for is the sound of people gathered together from all over the world 
and corporate worship. Isn't that what the church is? Isn't that what we strive for here at Redeemer? This is confirmed in the next two lines. The psalmist tells us to serve the Lord with gladness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the words, serve the Lord, sometimes I get confused. What does it mean to serve the Lord? When I think about serving someone, I think about doing something for someone else that maybe they are unable or unwilling to do for themselves. But what can we do for God that he could not possibly do for himself? Answer? Nothing. In fact, Acts 17 tells us that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything else. We don't serve God the same way we serve other people. Serving God has to mean something different. But think about what it means to serve anyone. What are you doing? You are operating under that person's direction or control, right? Just as slaves do what their masters command, just like waiters seek to please their guests, just like public servants are supposed to fulfill the desires of their constituents, God's people operate under his direction. They seek to fulfill his desires and to please him. That's what it means to serve the Lord. This is also why the word for serve here is the same word used in the Old Testament for work. To serve someone means that you are working for them. You do what they have called you to do. But how do we serve God in corporate worship? We call this a service, right? This is why we call this a worship service. Well, we seek to fulfill God's desires and to please Him as we gather together as his people. We worship him in the way that he has determined. Now, this has huge implications for how we conduct ourselves in worship. First of all, we are not free to determine the methods and the means of how we worship God. He has given us specific instructions, specific examples of how he is is and is not to be worshipped. So think about this just from the Old Testament. We're not to make any graven images, right? We're not to worship idols. Throughout the Old Testament, God gives specific instructions about how Israel is to worship him in order to set them apart from the surrounding nations. Their worship was not supposed to look like the worship of the Baals or the worship at the Asherim, right? Those are false gods, false ways of worship. God's people are to worship differently. In the New Testament, in John 4, Jesus talks to the woman at the well and tells her that there is coming a time when people will worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus is concerned about how people worship God. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul goes through great pains to explain to the Corinthians that the way they conduct themselves when they are gathered for worship is important, down to the very details of how people should even be allowed, how many people should be allowed to prophesy. We read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we see that man, God is concerned 
God is concerned about how his people gather together and how they conduct themselves in corporate worship. And we could go to many other places, but the point is that God cares about how we worship him. We are not free to determine for ourselves what means we will use in our service to him. But it's not just the external actions of worship that God is concerned with. It's also the internal motivations. We see in that same passage, we are to serve the Lord with gladness. Our heart is supposed to be engaged as we, in our service as well. There's a way to serve that does not flow from a heart of gladness. This is dry, empty, lifeless service. Now, we've probably all served someone in this way before. Maybe it was a particular boss at a particular job. Maybe our parents at different times. We just render blind obedience. We don't really care or think much about why we're doing what we're doing. This is the kind of service that we describe as going through the motions, right? There's no real excitement, no real care about what we're doing. We're simply fulfilling a task. How often do we gather together with God's people this way? How many of us, even today, have come here with no gladness in our hearts? Are you glad today? Can you really say the noise that you have made has been a joyful noise? Or is it just noise? Is the service you are rendering simply going through the motions? The Bible would say it this way, Isaiah 29, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We are called to serve the Lord with gladness. It doesn't always mean we have to be happy. Some of us have hearts that are heavy. Some of you perhaps are dealing with struggle, hardships weighing you down, even now. I'm not saying you're supposed to forget about all that. I don't think that's what we're called to do. But there is a way to still be joyful in the midst of struggle. And we'll see this as we move on. Next, we're told to come into his presence with singing. This is a pretty clear command, right? Sing. When you get together, come into God's presence and sing. We are told this many times throughout Scripture. But think about why this is. Have you ever thought about why God wants his people to sing? What is it about singing that makes it important in God's mind? Why did God create singing and then give the, the, the task or the responsibility of his people to sing together? Well, when we sing, what are we doing? Let's break it down really, really basic. What do you do when you sing? You say words, right? Words are coming out of your mouth. Now, there's more than that, but let's just start with the words. The words have meaning, right? There's meaning attached to these words. And so that's why the words that we sing, first of all, need to be um, true words. This is why the words to the songs that we sing are very important. Because they have content to them. They bring things to our mind. We are proclaiming something when we sing. Because words have meaning. But we're not just saying words the way that I'm saying words right now, right? 
When we sing, we draw out syllables and we make it into a melody. And we take that melody and we apply music to it, whether it's guitar, piano, whatever. The music is designed to help awaken our dead hearts to the truths of what we are singing. Now, the music doesn't do this on its own, right? The Spirit of God working through the words that we're singing and the music coming together, these things working together uh, helps to awaken our hearts to the truth that we are singing. It gives life, it gives a deeper meaning to the words that we are singing. Singing is a more heartfelt means of praising God because when we sing, our minds and our hearts are engaged in recognizing and praising God with biblical truth. That's why God encourages us over and over in Scripture to sing to Him. I think this is the most important reason why we should sing. Think about any other context that people get together and sing. When do, when's any other time people get together and sing? Birthdays? The national anthem? School fight song, maybe? I don't know. There's, there's really not that many times, right? But in those times where people get together and sing, what are they doing? They are elevating whatever it is they're celebrating, right? They're celebrating something. They're taking this, this child's year in his life and they're saying, this is important. Let's sing about this. We're getting together at, at a baseball game and we're singing the national anthem. Why? Because I mean, we want to elevate the, the, the idea of living in this country, having freedom of worship and freedom of sport, right? Not every country gets to do that. Let's sing about that together. That's why God gives us the gift of singing. We come together as his people. It's the natural response to go from talking to the next level of singing and proclaiming and praising. That's a gift. Now, there's other reasons we sing, too. Songs help us commit truths to memory. This is a great thing about good, solid Christian hymns, right? They're very rhythmic. They, they follow a specific pattern of melody. It's usually very easy for people to catch on to. And it's a great way to just know biblical theological truth and to take it with you for the rest of your life. I mean, Ezra, he's three years old. And for the last year, he has, we have sung almost every night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He loves that song. We sing it almost every night. I love it too. I mean, think about the words of that song. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's just the first verse. It gets way better. But man, if he can, if he can know those words, he has no idea what that means. But he will someday. He's going to have that song the rest of his life. It's a, it's a great song. So it helps us commit specific truths to memory. Next, singing is important because we display the unity and diversity of the body of Christ. Unity and diversity. I think this is why God gives us melody and harmony. Some of us sing melody. I'm pretty much a melody singer. I'm not very good at singing harmony, but some of you are great at singing harmony. And when we come together as God's people, we're singing with one voice 
But in, in how, how we sing with that one voice is through unity, harmony, melody, and harmony coming together and singing in key together with one another, most of us. And last, I think another reason why we sing together is because we actually sing not just to God, but to one another. We actually encourage one another. We spiritually encourage one another as we sing together. When we gather together and we know one another, we know one another's struggles, we, we've spent time together throughout the week, we know if someone is struggling or the hardship that they're going through, but when they sing it is well with my soul, right? We see that person standing up there. there you can tell, you can see it in their, their face, the way that they're singing that song. Man, that's encouraging. When you know that someone's going through a difficult time and they're praising God, they're willing to stand with God's people and sing the great truths of Scripture, that's encouraging. But like I said, I think the most important reason for us to sing each week is because through singing, our affections, the the desires of our heart are raised, our emotions, wherever they are, they meet biblical truth, and by God's grace, grace, we are strengthened, comforted, and instructed. As we do that, we actually fulfill this fourth command that we find in verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. As we worship together, we come to a deeper love, a greater knowledge of who God is. Now this statement, know that the Lord, He is God, means that when we gather for worship, we are remembering together that there is only one God. He is the same God revealed in the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no other God. As we do this, our hearts are actually drawn away from the competing idols that we've encountered throughout the week. This is why we have a time of confession during our service. We have the opportunity to intentionally reflect back on the week and recognize specific actions or thought patterns that have not been honoring to God. We confess those things. We turn from them, and then we begin to affirm that the Lord alone is God. Those things that I've been seeking all week, those things that have crowded out um, my thoughts of God, I turn from those things. Those are idols. The Lord alone is God. But we don't just acknowledge that the Lord is the one true God. We also are reminded of God's character. If we're going to know that the Lord is God, we have to understand what it means for Him to be God, right? We need to know something about His nature and His being and His work. This is why I say that God calls us to biblical, heartfelt corporate worship. We have to have a biblical understanding of who God is. The Bible must inform our knowledge of God. But even that knowledge of God is too superficial. We cannot just know that there's one God. We cannot just know what this God is like. Okay? There's a lot of people in the world who know that there's one God. They know what that God is like, but we must actually know God personally. 
When we come into his presence with joy and gladness, we are singing, and we're singing, we are actually in communion with the one true God. We are not just affirming truth about God, but he is actually here with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We are in his presence. We are called to know him personally and to love him for who he is. So all of that is to say that God calls us to worldwide corporate worship. Now, after we rightly understand who God is, our natural inclination will be to gain a greater understanding of ourselves. So notice immediately, after the Lord is identified as the one true God, in verse 3, the psalmist then declares the identity of God's people. If God is the way He is, then what does that say about his people? When we reflect on who God is, we are called to remember also who we are. So in the second part of verse 3, we see four statements of our identity in light of God's character. First, we see that God is the one who created us. Now this might seem like old news to us, right? Yeah, okay, God created us, great, move on, next. But this is something that Scripture reaffirms over and over and over. And if we forget or minimize the importance of God as our Creator, we will almost immediately fall into sin or disobedience. Now, when Kyle and I taught the Applied Theology class this summer, we talked about things like government, education, work, abortion, euthanasia, war, right? All of these sort of current issue topics that are important for us to have a biblical framework for. And almost every class we taught, no matter what the topic was, we went back to creation to see what God's original design was in order for us to rightly understand those current issues. The point is this. When we get creation wrong we get everything wrong. If we forget that God is our creator, we're not going to understand who we are rightly. We're not going to understand the church rightly. We're not going to understand what it means to gather as God's people. So first, we have to remember that God is our creator. Now, what does that mean for our corporate worship? It means a ton. We'll just take one thing. That person next to you, he or she is created in the image of God. So you're not just here for you. You're here for him. You're here for her. We're here for those little ones. Corporate worship is not about us as individuals. It's about us as the body of Christ. And we come together, we remember collectively God is our creator. Next, we have these two statements. We are his, we are his people. This is closely connected to God as our creator. If God is the creator of all people, then naturally all people belong to God. This is something that we must always remember when we look at those around us. We don't come to work or come to worship each Sunday, as I said, as a bunch of individuals seeking some kind of individual experience. But we are God's people. 
We are gathered together as a people. Next, we see we are not just God's people. We are the sheep of his pasture. If we are sheep, God is our shepherd. Now, this takes the relationship of God to his people to a much more intimate level. God is not just our king, and we are not just his subjects who are supposed to serve him. But he actually cares for us the way a shepherd cares for his sheep. He's concerned with our well-being. He works to give us what we need for our survival. He cares for us the way a father cares for his children. He knows what we need, and he's faithful to provide it. We just sung two great songs all about that. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Now, this is so important when we think about corporate worship. When we come together each week, We have to remember that God has designed this time to benefit your soul. Corporate worship is the primary means God uses to feed his sheep, to tend his flock, and to nourish their souls, just like a shepherd knows how to feed his sheep, tend his flock. When we neglect corporate worship, we're neglecting God's means of grace for our souls. But as we read on, we see more about how we are to approach God in corporate worship. And we we see that we are called, that God gives a call for thankful hearts. We are told to enter His gates with thanksgiving, His courts with praise, give thanks to Him, bless His name. So we see a necessary component of our worship is thankfulness. When we gather together each week, we are here to give thanks. Now, if you've ever been around children at Christmas or birthdays, you've probably seen what a lack of thankfulness looks like. I've seen this many times. The child is surrounded by presents. That's all they've been thinking about for weeks, months, perhaps. The child is so excited to open a present. He finally gets it. He has it in his hands. He's unwrapping it. He takes all the wrapping paper off. He pulls out the box of Legos. It's the Lego set he has always wanted. He smiles. He's excited. He lifts it up into the sky. He shows everyone. And then what? Sets it aside. What's next? Right? Let's move on. (laughs) Keep them coming. Right? You know, I always dread that last present. Right? He's going to get to the end. Like, oh, I have to... Is it going to be a fit? Because it's going to end at some point, right? This is just kind of what it looks like, just a lack of thankfulness. Now, we've all been kids, so we're, we give grace in those moments, right? Um, but, man, I don't know about you, but I see myself in that so much. My heart is just like this. In the moment of God's grace, when I can clearly see God's faithfulness, man, I'm so thankful Thank you, Lord, for how you're blessing, but how quickly, how quickly I forget what God has done. I just move on. All right, Lord, what's next? John Piper says that thankfulness is one of the greatest guardians of our souls. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that when we are thankful, there are at least two things happening in our souls. 
We are remembering the past rightly. Okay? When you're thankful, you're remembering the past rightly. Because you're saying, man, I was blessed. I was given something I did not deserve. I'm so thankful. So you're remembering the past rightly. And we are also keeping the present holy. Remembering past grace and having a heart of thankfulness helps us maintain holiness in the present. Man, think about this for your wife. When you're thankful for your wife, when you recognize the grace that God has given you and giving you the spouse that you have, you don't want to look anywhere else. But man, when you forget God's goodness to you, when that thankfulness diminishes, what happens? Our eyes start to wander, right? What's next? What's the next thing? I'd like to give an example of this from my own life. Um, this is just it's hit me re- really hard this week um, as I was thinking about this. This headset is really rough today. It's all right. I'll just pretend that's not an issue. Um, so, yeah, I saw this in my own life this week in a very real way, um, thinking about thankfulness and God blessing me in the past and helping me keep the present holy. You know, most of you know that we have the, our foster kids back, um, and it's been tough. It's been good, but it's been tough. It was tough before, um, and we knew it was going to be tough again. And so uh, our house has been crazy. Things have been just pretty chaotic. And so, but I've experienced this in my own life. In those moments this week, in the, the past couple of weeks, when things are really difficult, kids seem to be out of control. You don't know what to do. You don't even know if you're doing the right thing. Um, what's going to maintain me in those moments? I've seen this. Uh, actually work in my own life, in my own heart, when I think about how God has been faithful to me in the past. Um, I'm going to read just a a short passage from my journal. I don't don't think I've ever done this before. Um, But I actually went back and and I read this week something that I had written when um, our foster kids left. And uh, so I'm going to read it to you. Just because this is going out on the Internet, I'm not going to use their names um, I'm just going to say P and M, so we all know who that is. Um, this is from June 1st of earlier this year. So it's, this is three days after they went home. It's now been three days since P and M have left. This is the longest it's been without them for a year. My emotions seem to have softened some toward them. That means they were pretty hard. For that. Especially M. I'm sure she is so confused and scared. She must be wondering when she will get to come back to us. She's never lived more than two nights with her parents. Lord, please give her comfort and rest. Give uh, their parents patience and love for her. Please don't let her fear last long. As hard as it is to think, I pray that she would forget us quickly so that she will only remember being with them. 
Oh God, little children are not supposed to experience this kind of confusion or fear. I long for the day when you will make everything right. I never thought I would say it, but I do miss them. I want to see them again. If I did, I would hug them. Why didn't I show more affection for them when they were here? These are the feelings I told myself I would not feel when they left. I did not think I was really attached to them this much. And so I went back and I read that this week um, as we, I struggled again to love them. Uh, and in that moment, I recognized, man, God is faithful. I, I wrote down what I wanted. I want to see him again. I want to hug him again. Man, God's been faithful. He's given that to me. He's given me another chance, more time with them. And in that moment, I was able to keep that moment, that present moment, holy. Because I'm thankful. My heart was full gratitude towards God. Now, what I'm not saying is that God's going to give you whatever you want, right? God didn't have to bring them back into our home. But he did. I'm thankful that he did. I just give that as an example, as an illustration of what I'm talking about, how remembering God's past faithfulness allows us to be thankful in the present and to keep the present holy. And we must constantly be reminded of God's faithfulness. We must constantly remind one another of what God has accomplished for us. This is what we mean when we say that we never move beyond the gospel. We must always be reminded of it or else our thankful hearts quickly slide into discontentment. Man, that's my heart. Quickly slides into discontentment. We are thankful. We will come into God's courts with praise. We will bless His name as we're commanded here. Praise Him. Bless His name. Praise and blessing are the natural responses of someone who is thankful. Without thankfulness, we are not able to praise God. What do you praise? Things that we're thankful for. Husbands, when do you praise your wife? When your heart is full of thankfulness. When do we praise our kids when we see what a gift they are from God and we're thankful? So let me ask you, are you thankful today? What are you thankful for? Have you so quickly forgotten God's goodness. Now, if you're struggling to be thankful, there's good news for you today. It's found in verse 5. In verse 5, we are called to remember God's covenant. So we want hearts that are thankful. We want hearts that are joyful and glad. But if we're honest, many of us would probably admit that many times when we gather for worship, our hearts are not thankful We're not joyful. We're not glad. So what can we do? What's the key to joy or gladness or thankfulness? It's found as we remember God's covenant of grace. Read verse 5 with me. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. It seems so simple 
and so elementary, and yet it's something we have returned to over and over again throughout this series in Psalms. The key to joy in God is to be reminded of His love for us. First, He's a good God. All that He does is holy. He never does anything without the purpose and intention of blessing His children. Do you believe that? Nor does he let anything happen to his children that he does not intend for their good. Do you believe that? If so, then you have every reason to be thankful this morning. Next, we see that God's steadfast love endures forever. This means that there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. God's love is not just a feeling. It's a promise. It's a covenant This phrase, steadfast love, that we see in verse 5, it's a very specific term used in the Old Testament that means God's covenantal love for His people. Some translations use the word loving kindness. But what makes God's love for us a covenant? It's one thing to stand up here and say, God's love is a covenant. It's a promise. Great, Caleb. That's awesome. What does it mean? His covenant with His people is is a covenant because it was bought and sealed with the blood of Christ. Now, another way of saying this is found in Romans 8. Turn with me to Romans 8. We're going to see what I think is one of the clearest explanations of God's covenant. Romans 8, we're going to look in um, verse 31. It says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously Give us all things. You see, many times in our discouragement or lack of joy in God, uh, these things, these times come about because we are all really legalists at heart. We grow discontent. We grow discouraged because we are really legalists. We really want God's love for us to be based on us. We would never say that, right? We're good, solid, biblical, biblically-minded people. Grace alone, faith alone. But many times in our lives, what we really want, what we really strive for, is to earn our standing before God. We want to act a certain way or be a certain kind of person because we think that that will make us more lovable. So we try to force ourselves into all kinds of patterns of living. Even patterns that are good, right? But in our hearts, what we're really doing is trying to prove to ourselves, to others, and to God that we are lovable. We have to clean ourselves up. And once I do that, then surely, surely God, He won't cast me out. I have to clean up, clean myself up. 
But here we see in Romans 8, God's covenant love for us is not based on how lovable we are. If so, we would have no hope. Because we all know that no matter what our lives look like on the outside, which is bad enough, our hearts will leave us condemned every day. No, God's covenant love for us is not based on how lovable we are. It's based on the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified on a cross and actually took our sin upon himself. Christ shed his blood for you. According to Romans 8.32, if God did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, then surely he will graciously give us everything else we need. Do you need joy today? And is your heart lacking in gladness? Do you struggle to be thankful for what you have been given? God is faithful today to give it. His covenant with you is sure. And it's not sure because you are lovable. It's sure because Christ shed his blood. God will not let the death of his son be in vain. He will fulfill his promises because Christ died for those promises. He is faithful to give you everything you need. Last, we see God will remain faithful to his covenant for all generations. This is perhaps the most astounding verse of all. Because you see, we're all familiar with making promises, right? We've all been to weddings where promises were made. But we've also become familiar with broken promises. It's not uncommon for people to make promises. What's uncommon is to keep those promises. But God keeps his promises. He will never go back on his word. But why? Why won't God go back on his word? How, what is it? What theology can we hold to that's going to remind us that God will never go back on his promises. We've already seen it. It's not because of us. It's not because of you and how good you are and how much sin you have resisted. It's not because of us. It's not even ultimately, this is tough, it's not even ultimately because of God's love for us, okay? So the reason God keeps his promises is not ultimately because he loves us. It's because Christ died for us. He will not let the death of Christ be worthless. It meant something. It will mean something. The death of Christ on your behalf will accomplish God's purposes because God the Father will make sure of it. His faithfulness to you is as certain as the death and resurrection and mediation of Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 8, 31, 32, 33, and the rest of Romans 8 is all about. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Much more, Christ died and was raised, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, right? 
This is the truth of the gospel. This is what our hope in God's covenant love is in. This is, this is God's covenant love. His faithfulness to you is as certain as the death, the resurrection, and mediation of Jesus. Now, we've spent nine weeks, I think it's been nine weeks in Psalms, spent nine weeks talking about this, and I want to make it clear one more time. We are not slaves to our emotions. Yes, our emotions are real and powerful, and we cannot ignore them. I'm not suggesting we, we should. But our emotions are not meant to rule our lives. What we all want, what we all need, and what we all long for, whether we realize it or not, is joy. We want joy. We need joy in the midst of hardship and struggle, joy in the midst of doubt, joy in the midst of depression, joy in the midst of guilt, joy in the midst of shame, and joy when we gather together on Sunday mornings. We want joy. That's what we're all after. And we've tried week after week to point this church back to the Bible and say, remember, remember God's covenant with you. Remember that He is good. Remember that He is your perfect Father. Remember what Christ has done. Church, we can bank on this. God's covenant love for you is sure. It is certain. As we finish up almost four years of meeting here in this building, we have so much to be thankful for. This has been the gathering place for Redeemer Church for three years and nine months. It's just a building. It's just a building. But we've seen God do great things here as the body of Christ. The Word of God has been faithfully sung and proclaimed week after week. People have been baptized right here in a horse trough. We've observed the Lord's Supper together every month. We've confessed our sins together, prayed together, encouraged one another, rebuked one another, challenged one another, praised one another. We've made a joyful noise to the Lord. We've served the Lord with gladness. We have come into His presence with singing. We have known that the Lord is God. We have so much to be thankful for. As we prepare to leave this space, to move into a new, older building, let's remember that when we gather together, God has called us to biblical, heartfelt, corporate worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so faithful to us. Lord, I pray that... Um, Redeemer Church, Lord, would be a, a people who week after week gather together for biblical, heartfelt, corporate worship. God, I pray that you would unite our hearts together as the, as the body of Christ. I pray that we would minister to one another in um, real 
tangible ways. God, I pray that your spirit would be among us, moving and shaping and and sharpening and softening our hearts towards you, towards one another, towards the gospel. Lord, I, I just pray that Redeemer Church would be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Father, as we move into a new building, in one sense, it's just a building. It's brick, mortar, wood, stone. But Lord, it's also a testimony of your faithfulness to us. You have blessed us, God. You have given us what we do not deserve, and we thank you. Fill our hearts with thankfulness today, and may we remember, ultimately, the covenant love that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.